Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. You know, the summer is coming to an end and we're all getting back to business. And this fall, if your company is going to invest in just one new technology purchase, make sure it's a new phone system. Phone.com, the same people who invented VOIP phone service, delivers the most comprehensive suite of features, including talk, text, fax, audio, video conferencing, and more at the lowest price. With Phone.com, your, your team can be accessible on any device from anywhere, anytime, whether you're talking cell phone-based, desk phone-based, whatever it may be. Phone.com has advanced call screening features, so you can screen calls based on caller ID or time of call. You can even block those pesky robocalls. Phone.com has 24-7, 365-day U.S.-based support. Phone.com service is fully scalable for your growing business. Your company can sound larger and more professional right from the start. Phone.com service is so advanced that we here at the Tom Hartman program have decided to use Phone.com for our phone service. For a limited time, go to Phone.com and use the code TOM, T-H-O-M, at Phone.com. That's Phone.com, code TOM. This is the Tom Hartman Program. And greetings, my friends, patriots, lovers of democracy, truth, and justice, believers in peace, freedom, and the American way. Tom Hartman here with you. I wanted to start out with actually a number of issues that all, in my opinion, all tie together into one. It's kind of stepping off the events here in Portland this weekend. I mean, the, the guys who showed up in Portland were universally white, and many, if not most, or perhaps even all of them, subscribe to this theory that America is a white nation, that white people should have all the political power, all the economic power, that black people should you know, know their place. Well, not just black people, Hispanics. In the case of many of these, you know, these so-called white nationalists or white supremacists, even, you know, they include Jews in that list and Muslims. Their biases can be based on religion as well as race, or even gay people they would include in those lists. And this kind of hatred has actually very, very deep roots in the American experience. There was an astonishing study just published in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. This was a study that looked at the fatality risks during encounters with the police. There were 11,456 fatal encounters with police in this four-year period from 2013 through 2017. What they concluded as a result of this, and again, this is the National Academy of Sciences. Now, it's not coming from the Centers for Disease Control because Republicans have successfully blocked any funding for the CDC to investigate 
not just police violence, but any kind of killings that involve guns, ever since the 80s, they've blocked this. So the CDC is clueless. But the National Academy of Sciences looked into this, and what they found was that the sixth leading cause of death in the United States, the sixth leading cause of death, behind number one, accidental death, number two, suicides, number three, homicide, number four, heart disease, number five, cancer, the sixth leading cause of death among black men in the United States is homicide by police, killing by police. Now, you see nothing like that in any other developed country in the world, period. But if you're black in the United States, if you're a black man in the United States, the odds are out of every 1,000 black men in the United States, one will be killed by a cop. Now, for a white man, it's one out of every 2,500, 2,500, which is pretty shocking also. But one in a thousand? I mean, if I was told that the odds of my getting on an airplane and it crashing were one in a thousand, I'd be pretty freaked out. There's 10,000 airplane flights a day in the United States. That would mean, you know, 10 planes falling out of the sky every day. We'd be declaring a national emergency. And that would only be the death of a couple thousand people. But one in a thousand, I mean, that's mind boggling. So what does this mean and how did we get here? Well, it goes actually even beyond just police killings. A great article in the New York Times over the weekend by Janine Interlandi. Well, the headline kind of says it all. Why doesn't America have universal health care? One word, race. It was, I mean, literally racist senators, mostly in the Senate, some, many in the House, though, over the years, I mean, ever since the close of the Civil War, there was this brief period of about 15 years where the Republican Party was anti-slavery and very progressive. And then, you know, some Republicans became progressive again between 1901 and 1918. But those are like the exceptions to the rule. And that's why Republicans like to talk about, we're the party of Lincoln. We're the party of Teddy Roosevelt. Those were progressive presidents. But <laughs> in any case, at the close of the Civil War, there were calls, and in fact, several states where a majority of members of the legislatures, I believe South Carolina was one, were African-American in the years immediately following the Civil War, actually proposed and in some cases even began the process of passing legislation for statewide health care. And there's this book out, it's by Jim Downs, it's called Sick from Freedom. And he lays out this whole thing, that, that the reason why white legislators over the years have opposed state, at the state level and at the federal level any expansion of uh, a government health care system was because they didn't want black people to benefit from it. They said free assistance of any kind would breed dependence. And when that came to black infirmity, that is sickness in black people, Hard labor is a better salve than white medicine, right? The Times writes, it was largely at the behest of Southern Democrats that farm and domestic workers, more than half the nation's black workforce at the time, were excluded from New Deal policies, including Social Security, the Wagner Act of 1935, the Fair Labor Standards Act of 1938, which set the minimum wage and established an eight-hour workday, and the Servicemen's Readjustment Act, better known as the GI Bill. All of them effectively excluded black people. 
1945, when Truman called on Congress to expand the nation's hospital systems as part of a larger health care plan, Southern Democrats blocked that, making sure that the states that received the disbursement of funds could segregate the resulting facilities. Federal health care, they write, it was designed both implicitly and explicitly to exclude black Americans. Access to good medical care was predicated on a system of employer-based insurance, which was difficult for black Americans to get because they didn't have employment at those kinds of places where the you know, benefits were being offered. Back in the 1950s, black doctors and nurses were pushing for a federal health care system for all citizens. The National Medical Association, which is like the black AMA, was pushing for this. But the AMA, which was entirely white at that time, it was segregated, was completely opposed to a nationalized health plan. Why? Because it would have included people of color. Even the Affordable Care Act, the biggest beneficiaries of the Affordable Care Act, and here's where we get back to Trump's essential racism and the essential racism in the Republican Party to today. The principal beneficiaries of the Affordable Care Act were people of color. Why? Because they were the least likely to have health care, particularly in the states in the former Confederacy. And what are the states that refused to expand Medicaid? They were the states that had the largest black populations, principally in the South, the former slave states. So Medicare, Medicaid, and the Affordable Care Act all helped shrink that racial disparity. But you know, once John Roberts on the Supreme Court came up with this theory that he could drill a hole in the Affordable Care Act and allow individual formerly Confederate states to opt out and not have to expand Medicare to the working poor, which were in several of these states, if not majority black, certainly a huge proportion of their state who were uninsured, being people of color, African-Americans and Hispanics principally. It's all about race. And as a consequence of this, we are getting all of this, this explosion of white nationalist shooters, white nationalist killers. In fact, the police just shut down three of these things, three mass shootings that were on the verge of happening. In Connecticut, this kid, these are all 20-something white men, expressed interest in committing a mass shooting on Facebook and was trying to buy large-capacity magazines from other states. They found multiple weapons and body armor when they searched their homes and a history of racist and anti-trans social media posts. A Florida man was arrested after sending an ex-girlfriend a series of texts on how much he wanted to commit a mass shooting. A good hundred kills would be nice, he said. Police found hundreds of rounds of ammunition at his home. In Ohio, a man threatened the Jewish community center on his Instagram account with the caption, quote, police identified the Youngstown Jewish Family Community Center shooter as local white nationalist. I'm not going to give his name. And this guy was identifying with him, and he had this cache of weapons and ammunition. All young white men in their 20s. And now we get the memo from the Republican Party. What do we do about this? What do we do about this? The Republican Party says basically, you know, in fact, this question was asked. This is from uh, the Tampa Bay Tribune. Congressional Republicans recently circulated talking points on gun violence that falsely described the El Paso massacre and other mass shootings as, quote, violence from the left. A document obtained by the Tampa Bay Times sent by House Republicans asked questions like, quote, why won't you pass legislation to close the gun show loophole in federal law? Why shouldn't we ban high capacity magazines? 
Do you believe white nationalism is driving more shootings recently? The suggested response is to steer the conversation away from white nationalism to an argument that implies both sides are to blame. Here's a quote from this Republican document. We cannot excuse violence from the left, such as the El Paso shooter, the recent Colorado shooters, the congressional baseball shooter, Congressman Giffords, Congresswoman Giffords shooter, and Antifa. Now, by El Paso, they meant to say Dayton. But none of those people, the, the, the Colorado kids, the, the Dayton guy, the congressional baseball shooter, the, the guy who shot Gabby Giffords, yes, all of them were Democrats. None of them cited their political leanings as justification for the shooting. It was just a coincidence. I mean, they all also probably drank milk. 73% of U.S. extremist-based murders in the past 10 years were committed by right-wing extremists. But the Republican talking point, oh, we've got to worry about mental health. Right. This is the Tom Hartman Program. So when the sixth leading cause of death of black men is being killed by the police, you know you've got a problem. You know, one of the absolute common denominators among people who are really successful and, and really make things happen, whether it's tech leaders or CEOs or just average people who would just have a spring in their step every day, is that they sleep well. They've got, they have optimized their sleep. Uh, Americans are not getting the sleep that they need, and, and uh, you know, people who know what's going on are. And how do you do it? Well, it, amazingly, there's a new bed, the Pod by 8sleep which is essentially the ultimate sleep machine. The pod is the first and only high-tech bed designed to help you achieve peak mind and body performance by sleeping better. You sleep deeper because the pod dynamically adjusts the temperature on each side of your bed so you're comfortable all night. Um, you get statistics on your sleep. The pod tracks your biometrics while you sleep with no need for wearable technology. You sleep better. There's personalized programs and coaching designed by experts to help you toward true sleep fitness because the better you sleep, the better you everything. Try the pod for 100 nights. If you don't love it, they'll refund your purchase and arrange a free pickup only at 8sleep, E-I-G-H-T, 8sleep.com slash Tom, T-H-O-M. They've already sold out their first two batches, so they're going fast for a limited time. Get 150 bucks off your purchase when you go to 8sleep.com slash Tom, E-I-G-H-T, sleep.com slash T-H-O-M. On the line with us is Ian Reifowitz. He is the uh, professor of historical studies at uh, Empire State College, which is part of the State University of New York college system. The author of three books, his latest, The Tribalization of Politics, How Limbaugh's Race-Baiting Rhetoric on Obama Paved the Way for Trump. His website, Ian Reifowitz, R-E-I-F-O-W-I-T-Z dot com, Twitter handle, Ian Reifowitz. Ian, welcome to the program. Thank you so much, Tom. It's really a pleasure to be here. Or I should say, Professor Reifowitz, welcome to the program. <laughs> so, I mean, you have looked at this both as a fellow human being and citizen and also as an academic. Your book, The Tribalization of Politics, I just found extraordinary, a deep dive into how this all came about. And I don't think most people, you know, if you ask them, you know, where did all this explosion of white supremacy, you know, in its final gasp or eruption to the candidacy and then the presidency of Donald Trump, I don't think most people would have said, oh, yeah, Rush Limbaugh was there at the source at the beginning, or at least in the modern incarnation of it. Tell us about this. How do you support that thesis? 
Well, what I've done is I've gone through eight years of Rush Limbaugh show transcripts. In fact, that was sort of my alternate secret title. I've read eight years of Rush Limbaugh show transcripts, so you don't have to. And uh, I... Uh, that sounds brutal. What, yeah. <laughs> well, let's just say I'm glad it's over. Yeah. Um, but what I found was that that Limbaugh, for eight years, and he did this uh, to some degree, you know, before uh, you're, Obama. You're, you're talking the eight years of the Obama presidency. Correct. Ah, yeah. Thanks, Tom. Yes. Okay. For eight years, he set about scaring white people about Barack Obama and, by extension, about, about liberals uh, in general. His goal was to get them to believe that the Democratic Party, thus led by Barack Obama, was anti-white and was anti-American. And in Limbaugh's mind, those two are the same thing. He connects the two directly for his audience. That Obama's plan was to take from white people, hardworking white people, deserving white people, and give it to undeserving black and brown people. Uh, he also portrayed Obama as a secret Muslim. He attacked Obama on immigration and attacked liberalism, liberals in general, on immigration. And this rhetoric was put forth on a daily basis. Now, you can look at the rhetoric, as I did in detail, but I also connected it to political science data, survey data. And if you look at the voting patterns in 2016, for example, and obviously this is data that was produced by other, other political scientists, there were three things that were more predictive of a, uh, among white voters of a vote for Trump in 2016 than it was for um, a vote for Romney in 2012, for example. And those three things were negative feeling towards African Americans, negative feelings about Muslims, and negative feelings about immigrants and immigration uh, and the path to citizenship, you know, the sort of progressive immigration policies. White voters who felt more strongly, who felt strongly on those three issues were more likely to vote for Trump than they had been for even Republicans in 2012. This is true in the general election and also in the in the primary, when obviously they had other Republicans. So when, when Trump from. caters to white racist rhetoric, or when Trump promotes white racist rhetoric, he's basically activating his base. And his base was either informed by Limbaugh or was brought forward by Limbaugh. I'm curious which you think that is. is. Is Limbaugh a recruiter and an indoctrinator, or is he the guy who's bringing together the troops that already exist? I mean, the Klan's been around forever, for example. And I think it's some of both to some degree, certainly. And Limbaugh isn't the only person doing this during the Obama presidency, but he was the person with the largest talk show audience in the country, according, you know, according to talkers.com. Uh, every, uh, you know, pretty much every month from the time they started doing those surveys, his, his audience has the number one, is the largest audience. Right. So he, and he's doing this on a regular basis, even more than some of the other large hosts with large audiences like Hannity. Limbaugh, in many ways, laid the blueprint out for Trump. And we know from an article, I believe it was by Gabriel Sherman in Vanity Fair, that Trump was listening to talk radio in 2014 and 2015 as he was thinking about running for president. And he saw what was animating those listeners, and it was uh, racial issues and, in particular, immigration. Well, what does Trump base his campaign around when he came down the, the escalator at Trump Tower? Mexican immigrants are rapists and drug dealers, and Mexican immigrants are causing crime. Well, this is language taken right from Limbaugh. And we see right up to today when they're talking about the invasion, right? The El Paso shooter talked about invasion. Well, Trump and Limbaugh have been talking about Indian, an invasion of immigrants. So there's a, a parallel in the rhetoric, and we know it influenced Trump, and we know it helped him get the nomination and, to some degree, at least win the election. Yeah, and Limbaugh echoed that. Uh, rhetoric you know, just last week he you know he said yeah yeah this is an invasion I mean, why, why can't you say that quite 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 we're talking with ian reifowitz whose uh, new book the tribalization of politics how limbaugh's race-baiting rhetoric on obama paved the way for trump is just uh, you know a brilliant insightful piece 
and also speaks to the power of talk radio, which is a, you know kind of a whole other topic, I suppose. But you said that uh, one of the things that Limbaugh was doing was basically arguing that Barack Obama was anti-white and that he wanted to enact a, a massive wealth transfer from white people to, to black people, basically. Can you give me some examples of the kind of language Limbaugh would use to communicate that message? Because I'm guessing he didn't literally just say it in those words like I just did. Well, <laughs> he, he, to some degree he did. Uh, and I'll give you some examples. So on the one hand, when he's talking about, about economic policies like welfare, this is a classic boogeyman on the right. They've been throwing up welfare, certainly since Ronald Reagan talked about welfare queens starting in the 70s. Limbaugh did this as well. But, you know, and he talked about welfare being a, a program to transfer wealth from whites to blacks, essentially. But it didn't have to be welfare. Health care, right? On health care, Limbaugh said, I'm going to try to quote it as best I can from memory, but Limbaugh said, Obama's health care program is reparations, as in reparations for slavery. Basically, white supremacy, white nationalism, white racism has devastated not only people of color in this country. I mean, the sixth leading cause of death now among young black men, black men under 35, is being killed by the police. But so not only has racism decimated people of color, but it, it's also why, literally, why the piece in the New York Times about this yesterday, about why we have never had a national health care system, because the white racists, particularly the senators from the South, would never go along with any kind of a system that would expand health care to black people. It's why it's why the former Confederate states, uh, almost without exception, have refused to expand Medicaid under Obamacare, because they don't want black people in their states to have access to these benefits. It's why we still have property tax-based school systems, so that schools in poor black areas can never have the resources to, to produce high-quality students. It has just infected everything. And again, this all you know goes back way before Limbaugh, but, but Limbaugh promoting this just keeps us stuck in this place, does it not? Oh, absolutely. I mean, uh, let me just give you one more specific example. There was a, 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 um, a segment of one of his shows where he's talking about health care, and uh, I'll paraphrase, he essentially said, that Obamacare is, is going to end up putting black bureaucrats in charge of your health care. And your health care meaning, of course, your, for his audience. Black bureaucrats? He yeah, literally yeah, used that yeah. phrase? Yeah, 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 yeah. Black bureaucrats. Or, or, uh, bureaucrats in, an, in a black-run administration. I, I mean, I, I, it's something over, right. along those lines. It's as direct as, as direct as can be. Black people are going to, and he used the phrase power of life and death. They're going to, black people, or people who work for Obama or black bureaucrats or something along, are going to have the power of life and death over you and your health care. I mean, Whoa. imagine what that does to an audience, obviously. You, you, you know, you're, you're in media, you're in radio, sure. you know what, what, what power uh, a, a talk show host can have. And, I mean, that's how you get people angry, not just scared, but angry, although both of those things. And those things, in, you know, when you get an angry, scared person, you know, that's seared into their minds. Uh, I actually had a chapter about Obama's economic policy and the way Limbaugh talked about it, and the chapter was a quote from Limbaugh. He said, Obama's entire economic program is reparations, and that's a direct quote. Wow. And you wonder how many cops drive around listening to Limbaugh in their cars. I, I mean, I don't know the answer to that question. I, know, I, I don't even know if it's possible, um, you know, in big cities anyway. But um, this, this indoctrination, this is mind-boggling. What can we do about this? Well, what can we do about it? Uh, <laughs> 
I do think that we have to do something about it, and we can do something about it. Um, I, I mean, there's two ways, of, you know, we can look at it. What is One way is how do we sort of um, win hearts and minds to the progressive cause, the anti Expose it and awaken people, right? Right, right. And then the other question or the other path is how do we, what do we do about it electorally? Um, you know, how do we win enough votes so that we don't, lose the White House and that, you know, is, is, you know, the way to fight racism is to remove racists from office. And I think those are, those are two different um, approaches and they're two different tasks. They're related, but they're not exactly the same thing. I, I do think there is a way to uh, maybe inoculate people, at least those, you know, some people at least who are willing to listen against this kind of rhetoric, whether it's coming from Limbo or Trump. And that is to point out what the purpose of the rhetoric is, right? To say to people, listen, they're using this rhetoric to, uh, to, to trick you, to get you worked up about those people over there so that you're not thinking about the fact that they, the Republicans, only have one economic policy, and that's to take money and push it up the economic ladder. That's right. the subject of another book, right. not my book. Rich but white people basically <laughs> are picking your pocket while they're telling you to freak out about black people. Exactly. And if, if you can get those people to hear that message, then maybe the next time they hear something from a limbo or a Trump, they'll say, I know what they're doing there and I'm not going to fall for it. Yeah. Well, this is this is actually a message that I, I've heard relatively explicitly from both Bernie Sanders and from Elizabeth Warren. And uh, it wouldn't surprise me if a number of other candidates for the White House on the Democratic side have said it as clearly also, although I can't recall. But boy, this this is, you know, Look over there, right? It's the old magician's trick. You know, watch watch my right hand while my left hand is picking your pocket in this case. Amazing. Ian Reifowitz, his book is absolutely brilliant. I, I encourage you to check it out. It's called The Tribalization of Politics, uh, How Limbaugh's Race-Baiting Rhetoric on Obama Paved the Way for Trump. Ian Reifowitz, R-E-I-F-O-W-I-T-Z.com is his website and also his Twitter handle, at Ian Reifowitz. Ian, thanks for dropping by. Thank you so much, Tom. Great talking with you. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Our book today in the Tom Hartman Book Club is The Tribalization of Politics, How Rush Limbaugh's Race-Baiting Rhetoric on the Obama Presidency Paved the Way for Trump by Ian Riefowitz. This is from the first chapter. Donald Trump owns conservative media 100% lock, stock, and barrel. Full of bluster and bombast, Trump uses modern media tools like Twitter to directly blast the nation with his unfiltered, uninformed, and uncivil messages at full volume. To those outside the conservative media bubble, it may seem as though Trump is the entire ballgame. Sure, Fox News is a presence, but the news channel has reconstituted itself these days as state media, singular in purpose, to prop up Trump's candidacy. Whatever the, quote, conservative message might be these days, it doesn't exist without Trump. It's Trump who sets the agenda. It is Trump who determines the message. And it is Trump who decides who best can sell it. Ten out of ten times, it's Trump. Thus, in this world of Trump, 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 and more Trump, it is easy for the uninitiated to forget that in addition to the president's Twitter account, conservatives have built a massive media machine to promote a message that is often at odds with reality and the American mainstream. Forged in the aftermath of Barry Goldwater's 1964 landslide loss, this massive network of conservative TV, radio, print, and online outlets have allowed them to build an alternative reality so powerful and convincing that entire swaths of the country are held in thrall. A Pew study in 2017 found that 40% of Trump voters relied on Fox News as their main source of news. Meanwhile, only 3% of Hillary Clinton voters relied on any cable news channel as their primary source of information. 
Conservative websites like the Daily Caller and Breitbart reach millions. Social media like Facebook and Twitter is awash in conservative voices, further amplified by Russian bots. And the dark web has given voice to the darkest fringes of the conservative world, from white supremacists to conspiracy theorists, like the QAnon crew, convinced of a deep state conspiracy against Trump, fueled by child sex traffickers like Hillary Clinton. But nothing reaches more conservative voices than AM radio. Once the province of music stations, the emergence of FM radio led to a mass migration to the higher quality band that left AM radio in severe decline. Talk radio didn't require that same level of quality audio, and station operators embraced the format. The elimination of the Fairness Doctrine in 1987 made it possible for conservatives to take over the dial without concern that political balance was required. And in 1988, a certain Rush Limbaugh launched his nationally syndicated show. It's hard to overstate just how dramatically important Limbaugh has been in defining conservative thought and ideology, with an audience that has at times reached into the tens of millions. No single conservative personality outside of modern-day Trump has had this kind of reach or influence. Unlike Fox News, which actively makes conservatives stupid, Limbaugh's method of misinformation has always been rooted in a more solid foundation of truthiness. A 2007 survey by Pew Research found that Limbaugh listeners demonstrated among the highest knowledge levels in response to a battery of political current affairs questions, with 79% having either a high or moderate level. Among Fox News viewers, the number was only 65%, second to last, with nightly news watchers faring worse. Here's a funny aside. The most informed were watchers of Comedy Central's Daily Show and Colbert Report, also at 79% combined, but with a larger number of high levels of knowledge. But knowing the names of the Vice President, Governor, and Speaker of the House is only base-level knowledge. Limbaugh may accurately impart such information, but as this book shows, his pernicious twisting of facts, out-of-context quotes, and toxic editorializing have done far worse damage to our country than whether someone knows or doesn't know the name of, of the Supreme Court, of the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court. If you are anything like me, the sheer amount of misinformation stated by Rush Limbaugh on the pages ahead will shock and anger you deeply. Not just about how Limbaugh twisted the truth. As Ian notes early on, Limbaugh launched his coverage of the Obama presidency with four simple words, I hope he fails. With that goal in mind, nothing would stop Limbaugh from spending the next years reinforcing the narrative of failure. The truth never stood his chance. What makes this so infuriating is that Limbaugh decided the lies and policy differences weren't enough to make Obama a failure. Instead, he had to other him, turning white America against him. And he did that with pure, unfiltered, unadulterated racism. I was shocked when Ian first told me about this project. He's literally going to go through eight years of Rush Limbaugh transcripts. I was shocked again when he told me he was finished. He actually read eight years of Rush Limbaugh transcripts. But that was nothing like the jolt from seeing the result of that thankless labor. His comprehensive transcribing of Limbaugh's hate, always in full context. What these pages show are the words of a white supremacist. And you'll find yourself, like me, wondering how the hell he has gotten away with talking like a KKK Grand Dragon in modern-day America. There's nothing subtle about what you're about to read. For example, when Barack Obama talked about the disparities in policing between white and black Americans, as objective and uncontroversial an observation as possible, Limbaugh happily ranted about the president carrying out, quote, a purposeful effort here to divide people in this country along racial lines, end quote. 
Pointing out racism to conservatives is always worse than the actual racism itself. The book, The Tribalization of Politics by Ian Rufowitz. You know, the little aches and pains can really get to you sometimes. They can <laughs> prevent you from sleeping. They distract you during the day. Um, one of the really extraordinary discoveries that Louise and I have made is CBD oil. And in fact, we like the one from New Leaf Naturals. Uh, CBD oil uh, doesn't get you high. It's non-intoxicating. So if you don't want to do medical marijuana, this is a great way to get cannabinoids without getting high. It's non-toxic. It has potent pain relieving and anti-inflammatory properties. And the brand that I trust the most is New Leaf Naturals. That's N-U Leaf Naturals. It's the highest quality CBD oil on the market. It's 100% organic. It's highly concentrated, contains no additional additives. It's grown right here in the USA. And the only ingredient is hemp. So the product remains in its most pure and simple form. So go to newleafnaturals.com. That's N-U-LeafNaturals.com. And save 30% off and get free shipping in the U.S. when you use the code TOM, T-H-O-M. NewLeafNaturals.com for premium cannabinoid wellness. There's only one place, NewLeafNaturals.com. I mentioned this story out of uh, Santa Fe, New Mexico. My, my old friend Jim Turr sent me this, uh, uh, you know, kind of heads up on this. And I thought, oh, fascinating stuff. Um, it, the, the Santa Fe Plaza is, uh, you know, just this kind of beautiful walk-around space, and, and there's, you know, local businesses there. And uh, Roque Garcia, and, I, and my apologies if I'm mispronouncing his name, it's R-O-Q-U-E. Uh, Roque Garcia is, is this, this piece that Leah Cantor wrote for the, the Santa Fe Reporter. Uh, is an institution on the Santa Fe Plaza. For nearly 30 years, he's stir served up steaming hot carnitas. His lunchtime regulars include many of the shop owners, bank clerks, and other locals who work in the establishments surrounding this public square. And then uh, she goes on to quote him. He says, people have been changing in the last year and a half. Now people are asking where I'm from. Now, keep in mind, this is a guy, uh, although it wouldn't matter whether he was or not, this is a guy who's literally his grandparents, great-grandparents. I mean, he's a multi-generational uh, Santa Fean. I mean, his, his family's been there forever. And uh, he says, people are asking me where I'm from, shaking his head in indignation. He says, these people don't know me. They don't know my family. Used to be no one would ask you something like that. Everything has changed here in Santa Fe. And then, you know, the article uh, that Leah Cantor wrote gets into this story about this one guy in particular. Uh, one man in particular seems on a personal mission to make Garcia and anyone he suspects of to be of Mexican origin feel out of place, wearing a Trump shirt and Trump cap, cap and toting a gun prominently displayed on his hip. The man has gotten up, gotten on everyone's nerves down in Santa, at the Santa Fe Plaza, where he showed up repeatedly over recent weeks to intimidate peaceful protesters, musicians, and vendors. And the man allegedly told Garcia, mess with me and I'll shoot you. Uh, the owner of uh, one of the juice stands down there says he refused service to the guy after he was harassing the, this owner of, uh, you know, there's illegal aliens around. And uh, this guy, this, this local business owner says, he's just trying to stir up trouble and I don't do business like that. Um, he's been taunting people, this, this, uh, this, you know, white guy with a gun, right? He's been taunting people and, and demanding to see legal documents, making racial slurs, threats of violence. I would hope that Santa Fe could do something about this. This, this is, uh, 
not a good thing. You can read the story over at sfreporter.com is the, is the website. There's another story. I just have so many of these stories that are just shocking. Steve King over the weekend was talking about the rape and incest exemption that people are trying to put into anti-abortion bills. What he was trying to say was that rape and incest over the years have produced a lot of people. What he was really trying to say is that as long as we're producing more white babies, as long as white people are producing white babies, we want to ban them, whether it's rape or incest. It doesn't matter if they're white babies. Steve King wants more of them. That's really the bottom line here. But because of this, this whole, I mean, again, race driving this. And now when Tiffany was 12, this is from a piece in Mother Jones, a young man she knew invited her, her sister, and a friend on a late-night car ride. I thought we were going to McDonald's, she recalls. Instead, 18-year-old Christopher Mirasolo raped her and took the girls to an abandoned house in eastern Michigan. A month later, after a week or so, they, they escaped. A month later, Tiffany found that she was pregnant. Her rapist was convicted and sent to jail for two years. A judge let him out in less than a year. Right after that, he raped another young woman, and this time he was sentenced to five years behind bars. She kept the baby. She said, my son was innocent. And then in 2017, when she applied for state assistance, County Probate Judge Gregory Ross granted her rapist joint custody and ordered her to live within 100 miles of him. He also disclosed to her rapist, Mirasolo, Tiffany's address and ordered her to have her rapist's name added to her son's birth certificate. As many as 32,000 American women a year get pregnant from rape. And about a third of them decide to keep the baby. And in about a third of the states, and again, this is the mostly Confederate states, in about a third of our states, the rapists can be co-parents. They can demand custody, in fact. Alabama is one of the worst for this. For decades, this article says, the majority of states, like convicted rapists, exercise custody over the children conceived in their crimes. In 2015, Obama signed the Rape Survivor Child Custody Act, which encouraged the states to cut parental. It wasn't actually a law. It was more like a posture. And so half of our states now have laws that basically say the rapist can't have custody or the mother can fight the rapist with, you know, a basis in court. This is totally bizarre stuff. And again, it ties into this whole thing around race that, you know, much of the anti-abortion movement, at least as it's driven by Republican politicians, is about increasing the population of white people. Welcome back. Tom Harbin here with you. And one of the truly astonishing pieces of all this is, is how, how pervasive race is in shaping the United States, in shaping our policies, in shaping our country, you know, and all of these things. It's like, it's just absolutely extraordinary how pervasive it is. When Steve King started ranting about how there was how rape and incest contributed to the population, the human population of the world. What he was talking about was abortion. In other words, he was saying that, you know, you don't need a rape and incest exemption 
or exception to abortion laws because, hey, you know, rape and incest produce babies and it's as good as any other way to produce babies. I mean, that's essentially what he was saying. But really what he was saying was when, you, when he was talking about babies, he meant white babies. Tom Harbin here with you and John in Minneapolis. Hey, John, what's up? Racism disempowers people and democracy is the opposite. In other words, I guess I believe in democracy and progressive democracy or, you know, social, you know, democratic socialism or whatever, because I think that that's the only way that people are going to progress beyond these colonial, archaic systems that, you know, we, we labor under. And, you know, it, it, it's just amazing to me that, yeah, there is, you know, we should be rising up against the fact that black men are disadvantaged, especially when it comes to, you know, coming in contact with police. Hey, it goes and beyond would, disadvantage. When the sixth leading cause of death in the United States for young it, black men is being killed by the police. Well, I, 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 sorry, yeah, that it's deadly for them. I mean, and that should not exist in this country if we actually have a democracy. I think you have right. to look to Denmark, Sweden, and not to say that they don't have racism there, but where you have, you know, a uh, more egalitarian system where power is spread out amongst uh, vast groups of people instead of people, you know, at the top. The Republican yeah. Party does not believe in democracy. It's why no, they're they working so aggressively to disenfranchise black and Hispanic voters. But they're also disadvantaging everybody because they don't believe in democracy for the middle class. They don't believe in democracy except for them. And, you know, that cannot stand. Eventually, people are going to rebel. They're not going to be able to be bought off. And that's one of the things that discouraged me, because people, I'm an idealist. That's why I'm a progressive. So I believe in the progressive message, but it's always, you know, if in the future, what exists now is pretty horrible. I would say on a scale of one to ten, democracy in this country, it's about maybe two or three. And we're working down to get to be like Brazil or some other fascist kind of regime where, you know, we couldn't even have this conversation. Yeah. Yeah. And, yeah. and Brazil actually is going moving in our direction. I mean, Jair Bolsonaro is is like, you know, the Donald Trump of Brazil. And now it turns out that the reason why he won the election, it turns out, was because of WhatsApp, this app that uh, Facebook bought that right. Brazilians use to get and most YouTube. of their news. Yeah. That, yeah, that, that promoted the idea in the week before the election that his left-wing opponent, who in all probability was going to win the election, almost right. certainly according to the polls, um, had suddenly come out in favor of gay pe uh, legalizing gay pedophilia. Yeah. And, and, and Brazilians believed this. Yep. Uh, and there were all these fake news stories and stuff. And, and you know, this, this giant campaign, and nobody even knows where this campaign came from, whether it was homegrown to Brazil, whether it came right. out of white supremacists in the United States, whether it came out of the Russians or the Saudis or some other, you know, international actor that wanted to have a right-wing regime installed in Brazil. But there yeah. you go. And now he's, he's tearing up the rainforest like there's no tomorrow. Right. And I think that, you know, in Brazil, you know, they had a dictatorship, a fascist dictatorship. And, you know, the, the news media organizations are far worse than even what is going on here with Fox News. I mean, they get yeah. very little information that is unbiased. They have now cut their school system by a third. Thirty percent is what yeah. he proposed to suck out of 
the educational system in Brazil. He wants people ignorant, stupid, and unable to defend themselves. And that's exactly well, not the- people generally, John. Let's yeah. let's remember the in in Brazil, if you are upper class, which typically means you've got lighter skin and and a Spanish ancestry, if you are upper class and wealthy, your children go to private schools already. Right. So destroying public and- education in Brazil only destroys the education of people of color. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's, it's a fact. And this is how racism is driving all these policies. This piece in the right. New York Times I mean, over the weekend about how racism is the singular reason, the only reason that the United States is literally the only developed country in the world that doesn't have a national health care system is because of racism. It's because, yes. of, because of, of mostly Southern white legislators saying, we don't want these benefits extended to people of color, particularly black people and Hispanics. No, I, I wish the bulk of the voters would wake up to that. I really do. Well, that's that, that's my whole point. I'm, you know, I, I started out the the hour asking the question, how right. do we solve this problem? And I think the the first step in solving the problem is making people aware, and in, in, and in particular, white people who control the levers of power and most of the wealth in this country, aware of the fact that the, a lot of that wealth was stolen from black labor and stolen right. from back, black people after Reconstruction. And then on top of that, we continue to this day with policies that are race based that yeah. have to do with education. You know. Know, local uh, property taxes paying for schools this is all you know in order to maintain racial inequality yeah, uh, the- I think it's a more it's a moral issue you know it really is a moral issue because I think a lot of people don't care because it doesn't impact them I mean I hate to yeah. say that but- no well that's you know this is the white privilege argument yeah absolutely John thank you very much for the call this is the Tom Hartman program. Our book club book for today is Talk Radio's America by Brian Rosenwald, subtitled How an Industry Took Over a Political Party That Then Took Over the United States. This is from the introduction. August 1, 1988 marked the beginning of the long road to President Donald Trump. But even political junkies took little notice of the fateful events that unfolded that day as a failed disc jockey and former Kansas City Royals executive named Rush Hudson Limbaugh III made his national radio debut. Only a small audience tuned in. So poorly commemorated was the moment that we don't even know how many stations broadcast day one of Limbaugh's syndicated program. Limbaugh claims the show began on 56 affiliates, while other counts range from 57 and 87. From the beginning, the show was brash, entertaining, controversial, and boundary-pushing. Before Limbaugh, this sort of programming did not exist outside major cities. In 1983, there were just 59 talk radio stations nationwide, and the program on many of those stations consisted of advice shows, stayed interviews, and caller-driven discussions of everything from neighborhood schools to abominable snowmen. Most talk radio programming focused on local concerns. Most of the industry's stars, such as Larry King and Sally Jesse Raphael, had left-of-center views but rarely shared them. At the time of Limbaugh's national debut, talk radio had negligible political impact. In talk radio hotbeds such as Boston, hosts might influence local and statewide policy debates, especially on visceral issues such as seatbelt laws. But talk radio was not a partisan force, and it had no role in national politics. In fact, the wall-to-wall conservative political talk stations that dominate the AM airwaves today were impossible until 1987, thanks to a regulation called the Fairness Doctrine. That year, however, the Federal Communications Commission eliminated the policy, which required broadcasters of opinionated programming on controversial issues to offer an array of viewpoints. 
In this more permissive environment, Limbaugh would go on to revolutionize the radio business. In doing so, he helped unintentionally to spawn a major new political player. Within a decade, the broadcast format he inaugurated aired on more than a thousand stations and kept millions company as they commuted, worked, and shouted back at their radios. It took just a few years before conservative talk radio began to influence national politics and public policy. That influence only grew throughout the decades as the business changed. Over the course of the 1990s and early 2000s, the number of nationally syndicated talk shows rose dramatically, and the content of talk radio programs became increasingly political and conservative. Liberal pundits and some scholars agree on the broad outlines of the story. Conservative station executives conspiring with their Republican allies built a format modeled on Limbaugh's program, and thousands of Limbaugh wannabes cropped up all over the country. Executives, hosts, and politicians turned talk radio into an appendage of the Republican Party, using the platform to get Republicans elected and advance the party's agenda. The success of talk radio led to the development of partisan and ideological cable news networks, and some hosts complemented their radio shows with primetime cable programs. Eventually, this content found a home in the new digital sphere, with equally strident cheerleaders proliferating on blogs and other online publications. This narrative makes sense, especially to liberals. After all, many conservative media executives and their corporate political action committees donate to Republican candidates, and most hosts champion conservative candidates and causes. This narrative is wrong. In reality, the story of talk radio's emergence as a popular conservative format and the impact it had on American politics weaves together two distinct complex tales. Neither has anything to do with a conspiracy to create a media servant of the Republican Party. The first describes how talk radio spread across America in the process saving AM radio from financial ruin. Limbaugh had no intention of affecting elections or legislation and no inkling that he could. Nor did any of his early successors. The executives who gave these hosts a chance also had no interest in political outcomes. Hosts and their bosses were in business. They wanted to captivate listeners and make money and they discovered essentially by accident that conservative political talk in the mouth of an entertaining personality achieved this. Conservative hosts had strong opinions, but their primary goal was, and still is, financial gain. And it is because they realized financial gain that more and more stations invested in their style and content while divesting from competing formats. The second story concerns talk radio's transformation, after 1995, into an almost entirely conservative and doctrinaire medium that eventually spawned successors in other media, took over the Republican Party, and reshaped it in hosts' and listeners' image. Limbaugh was a great innovator, but he didn't change American media and politics all at once or on his own. In conservative talk radio's early days, hosts shared stations with liberal talkers and apolitical programs. There was not an immediate sense that conservative radio was the future either. But gradually, its success snowballed thanks to trial and error in the radio business, regulatory changes, political events, happenstance, and most importantly, listener behavior. Hosts also got a boost from marginalized conservative Republican politicians who realized that talk radio would enable them to circumnavigate the mainstream media and deliver their message directly to voters. The book, Talk Radio's America. You know, I've been running businesses for the better part of the last 50 years, and I can tell you from personal experience, if you don't know your numbers, you don't know your business. 
And the problem growing businesses have that keeps them from knowing their numbers is that they've got all kinds of disconnected hodgepodge business systems that don't talk to each other and don't summarize anywhere. They have one system for accounting, another one for sales, another one for inventory. It's a huge inefficient mess and it takes up too much time, too many resources. And at the end of the day, it really hurts the bottom line and, and frankly, even diminishes your ability to be a good decision maker. Introducing NetSuite by Oracle. It's the business management software that handles every aspect of your business in an easy to use cloud platform, giving you the visibility and control that you need to grow your business. With NetSuite, you save time, money, and unneeded headaches by managing sales, finance, and accounting, orders, and HR, instantly, right from your desktop or even from your phone. That's why NetSuite is the world's number one cloud business system. And right now, NetSuite is offering you valuable insights with a free guide, seven key strategies to grow your profits at netsuite.com slash Tom, T-H-O-M. That's netsuite.com, N-E-T-S-U-I-T-E dot com slash T-H-O-M to download your free guide, seven key strategies to grow your profits, netsuite.com slash Tom. Let's check in with Talk Media News and find out what's going on in the world today. This report brought to you by Goats for the Old Goat.com and loving what you do. Ellen Ratner's new book on the line with us is Bob Nay, the author of Sideswiped, former congressman from Ohio. Hey, Bob, what's up? Hi, Tom. Thank you. Nice to be on the show. Before I get into the story of the Iranian tanker that is now on its way to some unknown destination, although the Iranians have told the British it will not be dropping oil off in Syria, before I do that, Tom, I wanted to talk about a June 20th story, which we actually you know, talked about on your show at the time, and that's where British intelligence analysts cast doubt, and this is through The Guardian and The Atlantic publications, they cast doubt on the claims of top British officials about where information came from, and basically the stories say that John Bolton may have been behind false information, just like he was on the Iraq war, and John Bolton, of course, is the national security advisor for President Trump, uh, goading Britain into seizing the Iranian tanker under some uh, misguided information. And then, of course, the British ship uh, was seized, you know, in Iran. And this might have been an effort by Bolton to, again, start something. And then the story, which was uh, two days ago, which, uh, you know, the British uh, realized that John Bolton, again, was trying to seize the Iranian tanker. And so he was behind trying to seize that tanker, which was in the Gibraltar, region, which is, as you know, a British territory. Right. So when the British found that out, the British then immediately basically said, let the ship go. And in fact, within the legal process, um, I, I found out, in, you know, at least in one uh, article, a friend of mine told me that uh, what ended up happening was that the British said, well, you know, we, we don't have sanctions on Iran. America does, and it's not a reason to hold it for them to come seize it in mm -hmm. British territory. Now, having said that, that tanker is now gone from uh, the port over in, uh, in in that region, of course, and now it's headed towards supposedly towards Greece. Now, that doesn't mean the oil will be dropped in Greece, all right. right. But the big question now: Iran's put out a warning, which is almost like a, I, I know a, a tense, you know, uh, I dare you, but Iran has put out a warning for that ship not to be seized by the United States, and the reason I 
went through this whole thing is just to give the facts that once again the name Bolton, National Security Advisor, will pop up because you can bet as we are speaking right now, he is lobbying the President of the United States and advisors to go seize that ship. So John Bolton, the guy who never saw a war he doesn't like and is perfectly willing to start World War III, is behind all this. It seems to me, Bob, that the larger issue here, and I don't know how you can get an issue larger than the potential of World War III, but intellectually anyway, the intellectual frame, the larger issue is now that Great Britain has figured out that our Secretary of State was lying to them and caused them to take an action that actually put British soldiers at risk and put the integrity of and credibility of the British government at risk. Now that they've realized that, it's safe to assume that every other leader in the world has realized the same thing. How badly does it damage American interests to have Trump and his administration's lies exposed in a way that would cause other countries to say, you know, we just can't trust the United States any longer. What is that? What is the practical geopolitical impact of that? Well, this one is big, Tom. You've raised the point because Iran ices the cake for a lot of the leaders. You look at reports, and if you look back in the last couple of months, you will see uh, Secretary of State Pompeo, you'll see John Bolton, the president himself, everybody saying, well, they're with us. Our allies are with us. When across the board, in fact, Germany even spoke for France saying they're not going to do any type of military push, military action. They said we're going to try diplomacy with Iran. So all along the way, they have countered us that what we are saying about their ability to, to combine with us on Iran is just not factual. And now they're even taking it to a, you know, a further step by uh, the British letting a tanker go when even one of their ships are seized. And even though we're trying to you know, say we have to seize the tanker, they're still into the diplomatic realm. That doesn't mean that, that they don't understand that Iran is a, a, a regime that has you know, broken, broken down rights and things like that. But we're losing the credibility faster because of our obsession with Iran, which is a John Bolton obsession. Right. I think if Bolton was in the White House, it would be actually, Tom, a little bit different. And then we took an unusual step of having a United States Senator, Rand Paul, have dinner with Ambassador, well, former Ambassador Javed Zarif in New York City, inviting him to the White House, and then turning around, not Rand Paul, the administration through Bolton, because he thought maybe that might happen, sanctioning that very minister, which they invited him into the Oval Office two weeks before. Take out John Bolton's name and replace it with Dick Cheney's name. Aren't we looking at the exact same thing that happened in 2002? You were in Congress at that time. Well, it's the same people. If you look at, you know, uh, when, when I tried to deal with Iran issues and I called over to the State Department and I said, can you connect me up with whoever is running the, what they call the Iran desk? Right. And you know who it was, Tom? It was Dick Cheney's daughter. Liz? Yes. Oh, people my God. Even, she ran the Iran desk. And then That's... John Bolton pops up, you know, it's like that little arcade game. You, you hit one and it keeps popping back up somewhere. Yeah, whack-a-mole. Yeah. Bob Nay, author of Sideswipe. Thank you, Bob. Thank you. Bad news, but I guess we got to know this stuff. Tom Hartman here with you and uh, Michael in Bronx, New York. Hey, Michael. I guess you heard the breaking news that the NYPD cop that choked Eric Garner. The cop was white. Eric Garner is black. And the cop, Daniel Pantaleo, he escaped apparently the state charges from a corrupt VA turned U.S. representative, is no longer in office. He escaped Trump's um, DOJ 
courtesy of Bill Barr, but he was just fired from the NYPD by orders of Commissioner James O'Neill and following the recommendation of the administrative trial judge. And the whole thing is Pantaleo knew he applied a banned chokehold, which was the factor in Eric Garner's death. Yeah, absolutely. And, and it's, it's a really good thing that he's been fired. It's a shame, though, that he hasn't been prosecuted. As I said in the it first, first shame, hour of this program, the, the sixth leading cause of death among black men is police. And that simply should not be. It's not, you know, police are not even in the top 10 or top 20 for white people. But, you know, the sixth leading if cause of death. I can say in closing. Yes, sir. If I can say in closing that I applaud James O'Neill for sticking with the law and the Constitution and the policies and procedures that clearly said the chokehold is banned. But okay. I am very concerned, given the PBA president, Patrick Lynch, and the other police union presidents that want to see this as a revolutionary. And God forbid, I go out into the streets and I'm driving by my own business and some of these cops that are unhappy with the decision, they want to take their frustration out on me. Mm. And I'm a black man. You and I have met before, so you know what my concerns are. Mm. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, the, the, I guess the, the good news and the bad news is that in all probability this happened because um, activists have been following Bill de Blasio around as he wants to become president and asking him, you know, why he hasn't fired this cop yet. He's the mayor of New York City. Excellent points all, Michael. Thank you. Barney in uh, Detroit. Hey, Barney, what's up? Hey, uh, Tom, listen, did I actually hear you right, uh, I don't know, 20 minutes ago, that PBS has actually given Pat Buchanan his own show? Well, they're, they're bringing back the McLaughlin group, and Pat Buchanan was one of the original members of that group, uh, you know, him and, and uh, Eleanor Clift, who's been on this program many times, uh, who was the right. liberal. And uh, so they're bringing Buchanan and Clift, and I don't know who else. I, at least that's what the story I read in the in the in the newspaper over the weekend said. Yeah. I mean, I haven't so, heard this so, from PBS, but I read it. In, uh, you, I think it was the New York Times. So, sorry, sorry. Did what you did what you read said that he would be hosting the show? Or no, he he's 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 going to be a guest on the show. Um, yeah, he's, uh -huh. he's, he's not getting his own show, but he's back on television. This guy who, who literally wrote a book about, how, you know, the extermination of the white race. Um, I, I just find it, uh, you know, rather breathtaking um, and, uh, you know, and, and pretty mind boggling. Yeah. Yep. So thanks a lot yeah. for the call, Barney. Uh, Alan in Houghton, Michigan. Hey, Alan, what's up? I love Houghton, um, Michigan. Beautiful yeah. town. Hello. Houghton uh, Lake is such a such uh, a great place. What's up? Um. I just read an article, and I thought it was Port Side Snap, but it's a Daily Cost. It's a new book by Bert Norborn, America's top civil liberty lawyers, questioning whether federal government can contain Trump. Anyway, the article talks about Trump keeping a copy of, I think, Mein Kampf in his desk or in his uh, nightstand. Yeah, no, that was according to his first wife, and it was the collected speeches of Adolf Hitler, yes. Yeah. I'm not sure she ever said that he read it. <laughs> I don't know that he can read. Yeah, yeah well, uh, he talked about Hitler sending radios out that only was tuned to his station, 
Yeah. And that, that, that's where Trump learned how to control uh, the Twitter feed. So yeah. anyway, so, so you're aware of it, but I thought it was an interesting article. I think so, too. Daily I'm, I'm with you, Alan. I'll have to check it out at dailycoast.com. Alan, thanks a lot for the call. And thank you for being with us today. We'll be back tomorrow, same time, same place. A lot of good stuff to think about today. How, how racism has poisoned our politics and thus poisoned our nation, not just to the detriment of people of color, but to the detriment of white people as well. Also, that the rich people could keep picking our pockets. It's amazing. Get out there, get active, tag, you're it. We'll see you tomorrow. Have a great afternoon. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com.